0: Well, good morning. Could you do better? Good morning. All right. Glad you all are here. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 5. You can uh, grab a Bible in the pew back in front of you. You can grab your own Bible. If you don't have access to any of those, certainly you can uh, follow along. On the screen behind me. I'm delighted to get back to the Gospel of Matthew this morning with uh, all of us after a bit of a three-week hiatus. So again, Matthew chapter 5, and if you want to begin by starting at verse 33. Matthew chapter 5 verse 33, and uh, Lord willing, we will make our way all the way through the end of chapter 5, and next week uh, heading right on into Matthew chapter 6. Let me just uh, get us acquainted as you're getting there. As to where we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew presents Jesus as the King. He is the King of the Jews. He is the King of the world. In the first four chapters, as you can see on the slide behind me, we see the person of the King emphasized. We see his early life, his birth, and we see his early ministry. For For the last few weeks, we've moved on to the second section in the Gospel, which is the platform of the King. As Matthew records for us this first of five sermons from Jesus, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The sermon began in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, with the disciples' blessings, if you recall, or the Beatitudes, as Jesus taught us what it looks like to be a follower of the King. In verses 12 through 16, we saw the disciples' bearing demonstrating the impact that a beatitude believer should have on his or her world. In verses 17 through 20, we saw the disciples' Bible as Jesus clarifies his relationship to the Old Testament and tells us that our righteousness, that is our practical obedience to God's word, needs to surpass the legalistic, shallow, and rule-based obedience of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Then he proceeds to show us the type of obedience that God desires, in contrast to that of the religious leaders in a large section which, where we left off last time, called the disciples' beliefs. The disciples' beliefs, starting in verse 21 and running through the end of the chapter. What Jesus does is he selects six Old Testament commandments, and he contrasts the way that the religious leaders went about obeying it with the way God actually intends for us to obey these commands. So a few weeks ago, we saw the first three today we'll see the last three of these Old Testament commandments. Now we looked at murder, we looked at adultery, and we looked at divorce, and this morning we'll take a look at three more. For each of them, What we're going to do is kind of formatting. For each of them, we saw that there was an ultimate effect, if you will. There was the ultimate effect that Jesus talks about for the particular sin or issue in question. Then Jesus shows us the root cause. In other words, what is the root cause of that particular sin that he's going to address? And then he, thankfully, gives us the heart solution to that particular sin. So today, we'll cover the Old Testament commands regarding oaths regarding retaliation, and regarding the love of our neighbor. This is some of the best stuff in this sermon. I love it. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. So if you would pray with me one more time. Father, we pray your blessings upon your word as it's read. As it's taught, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, to, to receive your word and then help us to live out your word according to the power of your spirit. We pray now if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and they've not come into a relationship with you through faith in your son Jesus, receiving the free gift of eternal life and salvation and forgiveness of sins through faith and faith alone, then, Lord, may this day be the day of salvation for them as they hear the very words of their Savior. We ask it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Well, let's begin in verse 33, and we'll look at Jesus' teaching regarding oaths, regarding the taking of oaths, verses 33 through 37. And I want us to remember back uh, to our childhood days. Let's remember back to maybe uh, the days of our elementary school if you will. And uh, as we think back about that, you may remember as 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 a child or as playing with your friends that you would make a promise, that you would say that you were going to do something and you would make a promise, a vow if you will, if you will, and then you would seal that promise by swearing that you were telling the truth. So In my school, it went something like this. Your variation may be a little different. But growing up, I remember we would say something, and then we would say something like this. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Okay, now there's probably other variations, but that's just the one that that I grew up on. So when we did that as children, what were we seeking to do? We wanted to verify. We wanted to prove that what we had said was true, or that what we were going to do, what we said we were going to do was accurate. However, in your world, maybe like my world, there was sort of a way to get out of that promise, wasn't there? Now, for me, maybe it's different for you, but I remember that we had these little rules. So if you, if you said something like, cross my heart and hope to die, if, if while saying that, you crossed your fingers, right? So that was, that was once, if you crossed your fingers, While you said it, then you didn't have to do what you said you were going to do. Or if you were really tricky and knew how, you could cross your toes. Now, I can't cross my toes. Maybe you can do that in your shoe. But if you really wanted to be tricky, right, you could, you could like do this, right? Cross, you know, stick it behind your back. Or you could cross your legs, right, and and say it or cross your toes. And that meant that even though you said something, that you didn't have to do it, right? You weren't telling the truth. It was a way to kind of trick your friend and get out of doing what you had said you were going to do. Now, I say all that because in Israel, uh, in Jesus' day, in the the nation of Israel, the Jewish people had a very similar problem. They had a similar problem. See, they had created an elaborate layer of vows, teaching that vows given in the name of God— I vow to do this in the name of God, we're binding. But if you happen to say a vow, and you didn't include the name of God, well, then you didn't have to follow through on your vow. In fact, they had a whole elaborate system of things that you could vow in order to trick those that you were hearing. So you could vow vow by, by the heavens, or by your head, or by the earth. And if you made a vow like that, you looked pious... But in reality, you did not intend to do what you said what you were going to do, right? It was, in other words, a way of saying, cross my heart and hope to die, while all the while crossing your fingers behind your back. That was the scenario that Jesus addresses starting in verse 33. He addresses the dishonesty of these vows among God's people. In verse 33, then he reveals the ultimate effect of this particular sin, that of not keeping one's vows. Let's read verse 33. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now here Jesus is quoting the common teaching of the day and the implications of that teaching. What Jesus does is he refers rather loosely to Deuteronomy chapter 30 in verse 2, which reads as follows. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 2, which Jesus refers to, which was the common teaching of the day, which was that if you made your oath in the name of the Lord, you needed to keep it. Deuteronomy 32 says this, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything that he said. So notice this, God's point in Deuteronomy 30 verse 2 is that his people are to, a, to be a people of honesty. They are always to keep their word at all times including when they make a vow. They're to be a people marked with honesty, including when they vow in the name of the Lord. But here's what had happened. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees of the day, had twisted this to mean that you only had to keep your word when you vowed in God's name explicitly. In other words, they took the intent of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 30, and taught and applied it in the exact opposite way of its intended meaning. So, how does Jesus address this? He responds in verse 34 by getting to the root cause of not keeping one's vows. In verses 34 through 36, revealing the dishonesty of those who would make these vows and not intend to keep them. Verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or for it is God's throne, or by the earth; for it is, it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem; for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So here Jesus explains that anything that a person can appeal to, anything that a person can can vow to uh, can can vow to in an oath has some connection to God, right? Has some connection to God. Therefore, an appeal to it in an oath and to not keep it is to be dishonest. He is calling out their dishonesty. He's saying, listen, if you make a vow by God's throne, right? Well, listen, if you make a a vow by heaven, it's God's throne. If you vow by the earth, it's God's footstool, right? In other words, you're just being ticky-tacky. All you're trying to do is to be dishonest. He says, if using oaths to guarantee truthfulness becomes an instrument of deceit like it had for them then he tells his people that they should not use oaths at all instead what should we do well verse 37 we see the heart solution jesus says don't commit what to what you can't control verse 37 all you need to say is simply yes Or no, Jesus says. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You could sum it up this way. Don't commit to what you can't control. Jesus says that if we don't have the ability or the intention to follow through with what we're saying, then don't say it at all. And this is Jesus' teaching on the Old Testament commands regarding oaths. So let's begin now to think about and apply it to our own hearts and to our own lives. We need, as God's people as people of the king, to ask ourselves: is our yes, yes? Does our yes mean yes? And does our no mean no? In other words, do we look for ways to keep our word, to be honest, and our commitments, or do we look for ways to get out of them, like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? So, for instance, maybe you're in business. You're a businessman. you Work in or own a company? Do, do you do what you say you are going to do, even if it ends up less profitable than you anticipated? At work, in your job, do we follow through on the commitments that we made? We say we're going to take on this project. We say we're going to do this or that for someone. Do we actually do it? Do we follow through, even though it might be a little bit harder than what we thought, or maybe it involves things that we didn't anticipate? Will we be a people of our word? As parents, as parents, do we, is our yes, yes, and is our no, no? Do we do do what we say we're going to do to our kids? Do we promise them one thing and and follow through? Or do we just say, yeah, we're going to do this, but we we know that there's going to be some reasonable excuse that we can get out of what we promise to our children. Friends, let's not let's let's learn not to commit to what we can't control. The purpose of this teaching in Deuteronomy 30 is that God's people are to be characterized by honesty and integrity. Do we do what we say we're going to do, or do we look for ways to get out of it when it's not what we anticipated? Just yesterday, God gave me a great illustration of this in the form of my two daughters. So I took my two daughters out to run some errands, and we went to the hardware store. Now typically, when we go to the hardware store, we only get what we're supposed to get. But the girls know that they had me alone. Mommy wasn't there, and daddy is soft. So the girls asked, can we have a quarter to buy a little toy or a piece of candy? Of course I gave in. So I gave them each a quarter that I had in my wallet, and I said, you get one thing, and that's what you get. So, uh, there was this thing in the toy store, and uh, it had little plastic balls, and in those little plastic balls were these sticky things. You know the things. Parents hate them. You throw them on the wall, and they stick there forever. You throw them on the ceiling, and you forget about them. Those kind of things, and that's what they want. I'm like, okay, you can get that. So, daughter number one, Sawyer. Uh, youngest one, she goes first, she puts her quarter in, click, 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 out comes the thing, and it's a little sticky hand, that's what she wanted, she was happy. Daughter number two, Piper, sticks her quarter in, click, 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 out comes something else, and it's not a sticky hand. That's not what she wanted, it wasn't what she anticipated, and she gave me those eyes, She started to pucker up, Daddy, you know. And I said, honey, you know the rules. One thing, that's what we get. I'm sorry. I know that's not what you wanted. So we walked out of the store, and she was whining and complaining. And she said, after a few moments of, of whining, Daddy, can Sawyer and I trade? And I said, you can ask Sawyer if you want. I don't care. And so she asked Sawyer, Sawyer, can we trade? You can have this, and I can have yours. And I heard it. Sawyer said, yes, we can trade. I thought, that's easy, right? Problem solved. Not so much. Because a minute, a minute later, I I hear them talking in the back of the car, Sawyer, but you promised. Sawyer, but you said. (laughs) And I said, what's the matter? Sawyer said she would trade me, and now she's not going to. I said, Sawyer, did you say you're going to trade with her? (laughs) Did you say you would? And she said, yes. I said, then you need to do it. I'm just talking, I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. they don't appreciate that. And this is what she said to me. But I was pretending. (laughs) Oh, of course. Friends, that's what the Jewish people were doing. And we need to ask, do we do that kind of thing as well? So, Jesus teaches on oaths in verses 33 through 37. He then moves on to address the Old Testament teaching Regarding the laws of retaliation. Let me explain this here briefly. Starting in verses 38 through 42. The laws uh, uh, of retaliation. So you may be familiar, most likely you've at least heard, that uh, back in the 17th century there was a, a famous family feud that occurred between two rural families uh, on the West Virginia-Kentucky line. You know what I'm talking about? The Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Hatfields and McCoys. So uh, what began as one senseless act of violence progressed historically into a vengeance-filled vendetta, claiming the lives of many, many people on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. You may also be familiar with uh, uh, this scene from The Godfather. The Godfather won. There's a scene in The Godfather where, where one of the main characters, Michael Corleone, is visiting a Sicilian city. And he's visiting this city and he's looking around just to see what's happening in the streets. And he notices that there aren't a lot of men. And so he asks his bodyguard, I don't know what the bodyguard's name is, Guido. He says, Guido, um, where are all the men? Where are all the men? And the bodyguard simply replies, one word, vendetta vendetta, because all of the men of the city were killed off by family feuds. Now, I share these stories with you to give us a little bit of a context as to God's teaching in the Old Testament regarding retaliation. This type of retaliation that we see, this type of vendettas between families, we see in the Old Testament, in fact, we see several laws that God gave in the Old Testament to His covenant people that sought to prevent those type of vendettas, and they're known as the laws of retaliation, or in uh, or in Latin, the lex talionis. So, these laws are found in the Old Testament in places like Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. Jesus refers to those laws starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now he's referring to all of these passages because all of these passages that I just mentioned have this saying. Eye for eye, God said, and tooth for tooth. These were known as the laws of of retaliation. By referring to these verses, Jesus reveals both the ultimate effect of the sin in question, which is the taking of an eye for an eye, or the taking of a tooth for a tooth. And he also reveals the root cause. The root cause of this is what I would call revenge or retaliation. Revenge or retaliation. So let me explain what these laws intended to do in the Old Testament. See, God gave the laws of retaliation in the Old Testament to his people as a way to curb escalating vengeance and vendettas that often would continue throughout generations. See, these laws that God gave, you can take an eye for an eye. You can take a tooth for a tooth. He was giving them to his people as a way to limit retaliation. As a way to limit escalating revenge. Because what would often happen? You took my eye, I'm gonna take your life, right? You took my, you took my, my tooth, I'm gonna take your head off, right? That's what God was trying to prevent. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. God was trying to limit Retaliation amongst his people to no more than equal compensation of the wrong done. But how had the Jewish people and the teachers of the law handled this? Well, as always, they had twisted the scriptures, right? Over time, the Jews began to view these laws, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as not limiting retaliation, but as permitting re- retaliation, even encouraging retaliation and Revenge. So, in response to the teacher's twisting of the scriptures, Jesus once again tells us how to deal with the root of revenge in verse 39. But I tell you, Jesus said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Here is the general principle that he's going to flesh out. When somebody does you wrong... When someone harms you, when they take your eye, when they take your tooth, what does Jesus say a follower of his is to do? Do not resist an evil person. Here Jesus once again gets to the spirit or the intention behind God's law and reveals a heart solution. Again, the law of retaliation was meant to inhibit revenge, and therefore, what was God's intention? What did he really want to do? He wanted to promote peace. He wanted to promote peace. So let me ask, what is an even better way of promoting peace? What is a better way of promoting peace and limiting revenge? Well, yes, eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. You could do that, but what else could you do? You could respond positively in love. You could choose to not resist an evil person. You could say it this way. The heart solution could be stated this way. Go beyond the expectations to eliminate the conflict. Going beyond what is expected to eliminate the conflict. Jesus gives us four examples of what this could look like. These are interpersonal examples between two people. Notice the first example in verse 39, at the the end of verse 39. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. I think often this is misinterpreted. When someone gives you, Jesus says, a backhand slap, slaps you on the right cheek. If a person is right-handed, they're going to slap you on your right cheek, which, how are they going to do that? Backhand, Right? That's what Jesus is referring to. And in that culture, this was not a personal attack. This was not somebody trying to rob you or mug you or harm you. This was an insult. This was somebody insulting you in that culture. So what Jesus says is instead of retaliating by hitting them back or insulting them back, tit for tat, Jesus says, accept the insult and then ask, you want to hit this side too? You want to, right here? and hit the other one. In other words, he is saying a soft answer turns away wrath. That's what Proverbs says. and That's what Jesus teaches here. Notice the second example in verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So Jesus says if somebody wants to sue you wrongfully and take your undergarment, which they could do legally, instead of resisting or, or suing them back, say, okay, you want you want that? Well, then why don't you go ahead and take my coat as well? Just take my coat. See, the coat was much more valuable. The undergarments, you can get some others. But the outer garment, it was expensive. It was significant. So Jesus said, you want that? Go ahead and take the more expensive thing as well. What are you doing? You're being generous to the one who's doing you wrong, right? You're winning them over with your love. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. See, in that culture, a Roman soldier could legally force you to carry his stuff for one mile and for one mile only. And in fact, you could uh, they I think you can even see it still still today that the Roman roads had mile markers because they wanted to mark out that a soldier could only make you go one mile. So Jesus says, Hey, a Roman soldier comes and says, Hey, you gotta carry my my stuff for a mile. Instead of saying no or fighting that or somehow seeking uh, his ill, what should you do? You get to that mile marker and what do you do? You don't drop the stuff. You keep going. One more mile. You kill them with your kindness. Verse 42 Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow. These examples culminate in Jesus saying, Give generously. To the one who demands of you, even if that person, even if they're doing you wrong by doing so. Give generously. So the point that Jesus is making is that when we are hurt by someone, we don't feel like we have to retaliate. We don't have to take revenge. We don't have to volley back hurt for hurt, insult for insult, injury for injury, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Rather, he says, if you want to follow God's intention behind this law, which is that peace would result, then go the extra mile. Be generous. So as we think about our own hearts and lives, what it could look like, could look like a whole host of things. Let me just play out a scenario here. Uh, let's just say that tonight you go home and uh, you're married and you kind of uh, get into a bit of a, of a verbal argument with your spouse. Something comes up that thing that always comes up. You know, that thing that you always fight about. And uh, your spouse begins to tell you about the things that you've done wrong. Again, instead of not listening to him or her and starting to think about all the things they've done against you so that when they shut up, you can then start your assault, which is how it often happens. We could actually listen to what they're saying. And we could actually respond by saying something like, Obviously, I've hurt you. I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt you. I'm willing to listen. Is there anything else that you want to say to me? Is there anything else that I have done to hurt your feelings? Any other complaints? Any other hurt feelings? Friends, what if you said that to your spouse? Their head might just twist and then blow up, right? Something might just happen. Supernatural there. What about when somebody writes something, let's say on Facebook about you, instead of firing back your own nasty post? Why don't you just call them up, send them a text or an email, stop by their house and see what's going on. So Jesus has taught on oaths. He's taught on retaliation and or revenge. Finally, he teaches us about what it means to love our neighbors, verses 43 through 48. What it means to love our neighbor. Also teaching us, who is our neighbor? Who's our neighbor? There is a way of life back in Jesus' day. And there is a way of life today. And it's a way that many people get ahead in life. It's very natural. It's very common. It's not necessarily wrong. And it's uh, the way that I will call reciprocation or reciprocity. And what do I mean when I talk about reciprocity or reciprocation? It's the way of life that says, hey friend, if you scratch my back, then what? I'll scratch yours, right? You do something good to me, I'll do something good to you. I'll do something good to you, you do something good to me, right? That is what reciprocity is. I, I was reminded of how this works in our culture, and it can even be funny at times. I, I, I ran across a scene uh, from the the comedy from CBS called The Big Bang Theory. I just want to show a, a real brief clip here. In this scene, there is a character by the name of Penny. She is the fun-loving, kind of blonde, goofy neighbor to four very smart, kind of nerdy guys. So she goes over one day, and she's going to present a Christmas present to one of them, whose name is Sheldon. Now, Sheldon, if you know uh, of the story, he's kind of the OCD guy, right? He's very odd. Just says it like it is, kind of rude. OCD genius next door. By the way, I'm not endorsing the show here. But this, this scene, I think, shows the idea of reciprocity in a, in a funny manner. So let's just watch this real quick.
1: Okay, well, thank you for that. But I got you and Leonard a few silly neighbor gifts, so I'll just put them under my tree. Wait, you bought me a present? Uh-huh. Well, why would you do such a thing? <laughs> I don't know, because it's Christmas? Oh, Penny, I know you think you're being generous, but the foundation of gift-giving is reciprocity. You haven't given me a gift. You've given me an obligation. (laughs) Don't feel bad, Penny. It's a classic rookie mistake. My first Hanukkah with Sheldon, he yelled at me for eight nights. anything in return? Of course I do. The essence of the custom is that I now have to go out and purchase for you a gift of commensurate value and representing the same perceived level of friendship as that represented by the gift you've given me. It's no wonder suicide rates skyrocket this time of year. You know what? Forget it. I'm not giving you a present. No, he's too late. I see it. That elf sticker says To Sheldon. The die has been cast. The moving finger has writ. Hannibal has crossed the Alps. (laughs) I know it's funny when it's not happening to us. Sheldon, I am very, very sorry. No, no, I brought this on myself by being such an endearing and important part of your life. (laughs) I'm going to need a ride to the mall. It's happening to us.
0: (laughs) All right, so there we have the idea of reciprocity, right? You do this for me. I do that for you. And this is this is the way the world works. When people are nice to us, we're nice to them. When we're nice to them, we expect them to be nice to us, right? So be nice to those who are nice to you. This is normal. This is kind of normal. But its corollary is also, unfortunately, normal. What's the corollary? We be nice to those who are nice to us, and we be hurtful... To those who hurt us, right? Well, if we're good to those who are good to us, it's only natural that the people who are not good to us, the people who hurt us, that we should be evil or bad to them. See, we often love our neighbor, but we hate our enemy. It's common in our day, and it was common in Jesus' day. And in verse 43, Jesus again cites a common teaching in his day giving us, once again, the ultimate effect and the root cause. The ultimate effect is that you love your neighbor, but you hate your enemy. And the root cause is this idea of reciprocity. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? Now, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll or a Bible that has the, the, the words, love your neighbor in caps. They're trying to tell you that's scripture. Uh, but you'll, you'll notice that here, the teachers of the day were quoting scripture partially because the idea of loving your neighbor was completely biblical. It's from Leviticus 18. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. But then what did the teachers of the law add? Well, you love your neighbor, but you hate your enemy. Now, Jesus is going to redefine for them and for us who our neighbor is because they thought, Our neighbor are only the people we like, right? We only consider our neighbors the people who are nice to us. But our enemies, well, they're not in the category of neighbor, are they? Jesus is going to teach us otherwise. Notice as he reveals the heart level solution in verse 44. But I tell you, love your what? Enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, instead of hating your enemies like they were doing, uh, those that make you angry or hate you or or re- want to make you retaliate, Jesus says, you no, you don't just love your neighbor, you love your enemy. And I think that means both emotionally and in our actions. And he adds, we pray for their welfare. We pray for their good. So before we get to why Jesus says we're to do this as his followers, let's just pause for a minute and ask if we are doing this. As Christians, is there someone that you would consider your enemy? Just think about that just for a quick second. Someone you would consider your enemy, or maybe they consider you their enemies. Now don't say it out loud, especially if they're in the church, right? Someone who has it out for you, someone who wants to harm you. Someone who is antagonistic towards you. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a classmate at school. Maybe it's someone even in your own family. Maybe it's just someone around town that they rub you the wrong way. You rub them the wrong way. Think about it. How do you treat them? How do you treat them? How do you normally respond to them? Do you react to their hatred, malice, slander, gossip, or however by doing the same? Do you give them a taste of, your own, of their own medicine? Do you trade blow for blow, tit for tat, insult for insult, gossip for gossip? Is that, is that, that's, that's the way the world works, isn't it? That's not the way the church should work, is it? Or do we try to do what Jesus says? To love them, to not seek their ill, to try to do what is in their best interest, what is good for their reputation, what is good for their family, for their well-being. Do you pray for them? And we're not talking like imprecatory kind of prayers, like God may you strike them dead kind of prayers. I'm talking about real prayers for their good, for their salvation, for their benefit. That's what Jesus says. So, why should we do this as Christians? It's completely abnormal. Why should we do this? He's going to give us five reasons, and we'll, we'll go through them quickly here of which can be summarized, I think, in this heart-level solution. Let God be your guide to love. As Christians, we should let God's love be our guide to how we love. Five reasons. First of all, we should love our enemies because it identifies us as one of God's children. Verse 45, that—notice the connection— That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Just as a child imitates and takes on the language and the actions of their parents, God says, I am your Heavenly Father. I want you to act like me. You want people to identify you as my son or my daughter? Then act like me, right? Second, we should love our enemies because God loves his enemies. Notice, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves his enemies. So should we. Third, we should love our enemies because we will be rewarded for it. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, which is kind of what we all normally do, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Fourth, we should love our enemies because if we don't, then we're acting just like a pagan unbeliever. Verse verse 47. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? See, that's the way of the world. We're not any different from them if we don't act like it. Finally, we should love our enemies because, and this is like a a good way to culminate chapter 5. Because we are to be perfect as God is perfect. Holy as he is holy. Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. What? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect? Peter essentially says the same thing. Be holy, therefore, because God is holy. Perfection here in this context refers to perfect conformity to God's requirements, specifically in our obedience to God's word, which Jesus illustrates in these six Old Testament commandments. See, Jesus wants us to press on to pursue perfect obedience, one that is not external only, but one that is internal, so that we can say with Paul, not that I have already obtained this. See, we're not going to be perfect Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal. Let me ask you, because Paul knew that he couldn't be perfect as Jesus, did that stop him from pursuing being perfect like Jesus? Well, let's hear. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So, we've seen God's people are characterized by their honesty, by their integrity, By not being a people of retaliation or revenge, and by loving not only our neighbors, people that we like, but even our enemies. Being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So let me close with this God is holy, He is holy, and He demands that His people be holy as well. God is the one who sets our moral standards. We don't set it ourselves. God sets our moral standards. His standards for a relationship with him, to be able to be in his presence both now and forever, from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, has been moral perfection, has been holiness. God created mankind, Adam and Eve, innocent, able to pursue moral perfection, but in the fall mankind sinned. We were all plunged into a state of rebellion and folly and sinfulness. We were separated from God and we were all born with Adam's nature, with a nature bent on sin and independent of God. And not only are we born that way, but guess what? We act that way. We act on our nature. What we try to do is to lower God's standards so that we can feel as if we are meeting them. Kind of like a hurdler who begins the race and he lowers the hurdle so he can jump over him. Or a high jumper who lowers the bar so she can feel like she can do it. That's what we do with God's standards. But in reality, we can't do that. No one can jump over the bar or the hurdle of God's holiness on their own. We can't do it. That's why God sent Jesus in the first place. To be fully human, like us, to be our representative, and to be fully God, because He was God for all eternity, to live perfectly for us. Only God can be perfect, so our human substitute had to be perfect, had to be human, had to be God, to give us this righteousness, this perfect standing, this holiness as a gift. To be received. Jesus not only lived for us, He died for us because we all fall short of God's standards. He paid the penalty for our sins, for my sins, for everyone's sins. And not only that, but He rose from the dead. He defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan's grip on us, and He offers us forgiveness of sins and eternal life and salvation. And He says, All you have to do is receive this gift by faith, by receiving the gift of salvation. Friends, the only way that we can be perfect, therefore, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, is by first trusting in God's perfect Son. And when we do this, after we are born again, we begin to pursue perfection. We begin to pursue obedience to God's commands by the Spirit's help. So as we close, let me just ask, have you received the perfect life of Jesus in your place for your sins? Have you trusted in Him personally? And if not, then you can pray with me right now as we close our time together in prayer. So let's pray. Father, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, may they pray now to receive Jesus as their Savior. And friends, if that's you, if you know that you have been lowering God's moral standards, lowering the bar so that you can meet them, and now you realize that you cannot, that God is perfect, he is altogether holy, and we are less than that. And the due, the just penalty of our sin, is hell forever, your perfect justice being poured out upon us. But we now have a Savior and you want to trust in Jesus. Then pray, pray along with me. Father, I recognize now that you are holy and that I am not, that I'm a sinner and that you are altogether uh, um, perfect and holy and that your requirements I can't meet. But you have sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life for me, to be my sinless substitute to be the sacrifice for my my sins. And I receive his gift, his forgiveness, his salvation now in Jesus' name. And if you have done that, then friends, come come and see me. And we'll talk about the new life that you have. For those of us who have received this gift, Father, I pray, uh, including myself, that we would, as Paul says, um, not that we've attained it, not that we've already met that goal, but may it be our life's goal to press on to this holiness, this holiness that which you took hold of us. You made us your own so that we could be holy and godly, more and more like our heavenly father. Help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen, guys. See you next week. Thanks for coming.